electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza at One Market in San Francisco, along with Julia Borston in L.A. Carl and John have the morning off. Today, a look at Walmart's transformation into a tech company. Well, they are pushing into streaming despite a strong consumer as advertising and e-commerce revenues gain plus Hedge funds hopping back on the tech bandwagon. A look at how Berkshire's big paramount bet as Buffett scoops up even more shares of Apple. That stock is now just inches from all-time highs. Here to help us break it all down, Plexo Capital's Lo Tony joining me here at One Market as guest host this hour. Welcome, Lo. It's great to have you. Let's dive right into Walmart after a surprisingly strong quarter for the retailer. Courtney Reagan joins us with more after speaking to CEO Doug McMillan last hour. Courtney, has a great interview. Oh, thank you very much, Dee. Appreciate it. Yeah, we are here in Walmart's hometown of Bentonville, Arkansas. And the retailer did beat expectations for adjusted profit and revenue. Of course, those were lowered expectations after issuing a warning just a couple weeks ago. Though CEO Doug McMillan did tell me that inflation is putting pressure on the American consumer. And Walmart did confirm that it's adding paramount Plus, as that streaming benefit for Walmart Plus members, that's going to happen in September. And I asked McMillan if it had to do this, to add this streaming content option to attract or retain those Walmart Plus members. And he said, look, it was always part of the plan. Even two years in, though, Walmart really hasn't given much detail about Walmart Plus. We don't know how many members it has, though Consumer Intelligence Research Partners estimates it's plateauing around 11 million. McMillan said the company just doesn't emphasize the program because it doesn't want to be measured by just one metric. Now, Walmart's highly profitable, albeit small and growing advertising business did see sales grow 30 percent year over year this quarter. I asked McMillan then, does this mean that he's not seeing the same slowdown in advertising spending that other big tech online players are seeing? And he said, look, this is just a very small business. It's underdeveloped and we have a unique proposition. We can do a better job than just about anybody of helping an advertiser know if a transaction happens later in a store. So, you know, having the digital advertising capability as we would with our app and our website is part of the equation, but being able to share data related to how um, transactions may have followed on from that ad is also a unique position for us. Now, Walmart's net U.S. e-commerce business in total did re-accelerate, seeing 12% growth year over year in this most recent quarter after two quarters of growing just 1%. But at $73 billion in annual revenue there, it's just under about 12% of Walmart's total revenue. So I asked McMillan if the retailer needed another Mark Lurie to really reinvigorate e-commerce, help it get to the next level. And he said, look, Mark Lurie did a great job for us, but we all are now e-commerce leaders. We all think in an omni-channel way with both physical and digital retail. D. 
Yeah, what's really interesting here is that when it comes to physical and digital, advertising can be such a key way to bridge that. And those ads are so valuable now. Courtney, thank you so much for joining us uh, and such a fantastic interview. Now, Lo, I'm curious for your thoughts here. A, how important do you think the subscription service is going to be for Walmart's future? And do you think Walmart has a chance to be an ad behemoth the way Amazon has become one? You know, what's, what's really interesting is just thinking about the catch-up that Walmart has to do. You know, I think with their subscription service, I don't know, maybe they're at 15, 16 million compared to Amazon Prime's probably 200 million plus or so. So there's a little bit of catch-up that has to happen. I think there is an opportunity for Walmart to be able to capture a slightly different consumer than what Amazon has. So I think the potential is there, but there's a lot of catch-up that has to happen. I thought the most interesting comment was around the advertising business, because at the end of the day, from an advertiser's perspective, that attribution, actually being able to track the impression all the way to the purchase, that is one of the most difficult things to accomplish. And if they can succeed in that, then it could be a potentially interesting platform. Well, that's kind of what Amazon did, right? Lo, they, their method of advertising and that direct relationship with seeing that purchase go through has really helped them. And on their last call, they said that's why um, it's been faring well in this downturn. In terms of that consumer, though, it's funny because Walmart feels like it's moving upstream. Amazon is trying to move downstream. <laughs> They're in greater and greater competition. I love that Courtney asked him if they needed another Mark Lore, who really transformed the e-commerce side of the business. Can they do that in advertising, in streaming through partnerships or organically, or do they need to be more acquisitive, bring others in? You know, I think what's gonna be important for Walmart is the cultural shift that it has to achieve. The ability to be able to talk about all of these different elements I think is important, but at the end of the day, it's the people that has to make that happen. Culturally, this is gonna be different. now. Every company is going through this, right? Everyone is going through digital transformation. You know, Mark Laurie, who was the founder of Jet.com, which was acquired by Walmart, I mean, he really did bring a lot of that DNA along with the team that he built. But now, you know, every company has to think about themselves. If you're in retail, you're an omni-channel retailer accessing customers across all channels. So that cultural shift, in my mind, is what's really going to be key. Right. And Julie, I wonder, because you cover advertising so closely, the proposition that Walmart may have. Is that similar to an Amazon in your mind? Is there a lot of opportunity there? Absolutely. Right now, companies such as Amazon, Google Search, and yes, Walmart are more valuable than ever in their ability to reach consumers. I mean, that's why Elliot is interested in Pinterest, because people go yeah. there um, with interest. They are looking to buy products. And so the ability to target ads to those consumers is incredibly valuable. And I think that this is the category that has an opportunity to really grow, especially during a recession. So, so a lot of opportunity there. Just remarkable to see that 30% growth. Remember, guys, all the other ad players that uh, look at the likes of, of Snap and Facebook, Meta, we've seen their ad growth really come to a screeching halt low. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the advertising game is tough. And when we start to think about the different levers that these companies have to be able to, to manage to the bottom line their expenses. And again, I go back to if attribution can happen, you know, that's where we typically see a little bit of hesitancy in pulling that lever. Now, brand, on the other hand, hard to measure attribution. And so that's part of the mm -hmm. challenge, right? And, you know, I think that you're, you're 
This is a really interesting topic. I think um, this is the week of advertising-based revenues, clearly, right? <laughs> yeah, in a very different sense to Julia's point, yeah. right? The sort of e-commerce model versus the Facebook Snap, which is struggling, and even Google in this environment when it comes to YouTube. Julia. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's stick with Walmart, but shift gears over to its streaming deal. Alain Rossman, an early member of Apple's Macintosh team and the former CEO of Voodoo, which Walmart acquired for $100 million back in 2010. He joins us now to discuss. Alain, thank you for joining us. You know, this was big news yesterday that Walmart was partnering with Paramount. I know from my sources that they were talking to other companies, um, including Disney, uh, as well as Peacock. Why do you think they decided to go with Paramount Plus and that $5 ad-supported streaming service. Well, I can see multiple reasons for that to happen. One, of course, is trying to get to a different consumer. Uh, you know, with an advertising-supported uh, type of offering, they can keep the price lower than Amazon Prime and try to get uh, less overlap than they do otherwise. I had read the overlap may be as high as 60%. Another reason, of course, is who wants to play. Uh, <laughs> it's not clear that the Disney's, Amazon certainly not, of course, but uh, Netflix would want to play. Uh, you need to find a player with valuable content and a desire to grow, a strong desire to grow. And I think they found that in, uh, uh, in Paramount and they couldn't find it anywhere else, probably. Yeah, certainly uh, having these additional subscribers should help Paramount hit its targets or certainly push it in the right direction. But I'm wondering what you think this means about Walmart's digital strategy. They already have a partnership with Spotify. Do you think they'll make other partnerships with other types of content or streaming companies or down the line after this one year exclusivity ends? Do you think they'll end others, add others? I, this would be my guess. Now, this is only a guess. We, it, they are leaving it open, of course, so they are creating optionality for themselves, which is wise under the circumstance. It feels like the plan could be to become a sort of Shopify for video, essentially. Let others in, put a pool of money proportional to the subscriber base and redistribute that uh, to, the, to the streamers. Uh, this could be a good strategy perhaps for Walmart. This is a, you know, they could become the marketplace for the tier just below the Disney's and the Netflix of the world. I, they would make sense to me. So, Alain, it may be a good strategy for Walmart, but talk about the streamers proposition here. Paramount, what are they giving up in order to be able to bundle their service? They lose some valuable things, such as customer insights, the data, right? And it depends on the agreement. They could be data sharing agreements that, uh, you know, that we don't know about. They could lose uh, some some data and some access, but they're gaining cost of acquisition. They're gaining subscribers. Uh, Paramount has very aggressive uh, um, targets. They want to triple pretty quickly. Yeah. And so you need to, you know, at some point at there is a cost, given, there though? is a take. Well, that's for, that's for them to decide. I'm not going to second guess <laughs> them, but obviously they must find it harder than, you know, than we understand. They have yeah. to, to come to the table, you have to have the need and, and feel the need, uh, especially on a one-year exclusive, knowing that Walmart could cut more deals in the future. Yes, well, interesting seeing Walmart shares up 5.5% today on those earnings and that news and Paramount shares up fractionally. Alain, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, thank quick you for point to you. Me. 
quick one to you. And sure. What does the profitability picture look like in a deal like this? It feels like Paramount's still trying to gain, you know, we don't know the mechanics of the deal, right. but they're clearly a smaller player in the streaming war. So what do they have to give up, especially at a time when the markets are looking for more of that profitability from even the bigger players? Yeah, I mean, it could increase the distribution, obviously giving Paramount access to the customer base, increase their revenues, and then sharing some of that with with Walmart. I, you know, look, Amazon went from spending $1.2 billion in 2013 to now it spends $13 billion in content. So again, yeah. I think there's a big catch-up that Walmart has to play. And Amazon was built from the ground up as a digital native company. Yeah, speaking of streaming, remember they had that thing with TikTok, too. So we've come a long way. <laughs> um, also speaking of streaming, Berkshire Hathaway scooping up almost 10 million shares of Paramount. One of many headlines from the latest slate of 13F filings. Leslie Picker, you're still whale watching, and you have the latest breakdown. Yes. Leslie. Yes, I don't have my whale watching outfit on yet, but still whale watching in spirit, Deirdre. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway also boosting its stake in Apple during the quarter. Warren Buffett's firm held more than $120 billion worth at the end of Q2 there. But many major investors actually sold off some of their tech exposure. Third point, Stan Loeb exited stakes in Amazon, Dell, Zendesk, and Microsoft. Apple loses David Tepper also trimmed holdings in Microsoft as Alphabet and uh, as well as in Alphabet and Micron, although he slightly added to his stake in Meta. Large growth tech investors like Tiger Global, Co2, D1, they sold off many of their tech names in an effort to stem losses in performance during the quarter and for the first half of the year. Elliott, which had pushed for changes, if you recall, at Twitter a few years ago, interestingly dumped its exposure during Q2. That was shortly after Elon Musk announced plans to buy the company. We don't know if they hold beneficial exposure elsewhere in derivatives and so forth, but at least in the public filings, it appears they did uh, get out of that uh, exposure during the quarter. Michael Burry, known for calling out the subprime mortgage crisis, sold out all of his equity positions, including Meta, Alphabet, Warner Brothers, and Discovery. He also exited his short bet against Apple. One standout, though, was Viking Global, which went on a buying spree during the quarter. The firm at least doubling stakes in Meta, Block, and Take-Two during the quarter. Now, important to note, as always, that these positions are backdated to June 30th. They have likely changed in the six weeks since then after so much has happened in the market this summer, guys. So much has happened indeed, and it's so interesting on the heels of that Paramount news to look at the fact that Berkshire Hathaway was buying up Paramount. And also we saw some interest in Warner Brothers Discovery. What is the angle there other than the fact that those stocks have just been sold off so much? Yeah, I think part of it's a value play. That's really all we can glean from these 13F filings. And we don't even know what their current positions are with regard to media stocks. There's been a lot of activism in media as well as I know you and I have gotten to collaborate on in recent years. And so part of it comes from, you know, hedge funds that are more deeply involved in activism. And that has just been an attractive sector for that group of individuals. And then part of it is just a value play. And, and you know, investors seeing an opportunity to, to really jump in at, at those levels. Fantastic stuff, Leslie. Thanks so much. Lo, curious what you think here. I mean, we have the media play, but also some of these some of these guys, you know, buying up more meta and others. We saw Tiger Global increases stake in meta platforms, took a took um, a, a stake in Al Alphabet. And no, those were relatively small, but we are seeing some of these players see opportunity right now. Yeah, no doubt. I think not only do we see some of the crossover folks like shifting their attention away from the late stage private 
to all of these great deals because these companies have just been so beat up in the public markets with the macro environment, the interest rates kind of pushing down those valuation multiples. So I'm not surprised to see that amount of activity. We've also seen a lot of activity from the, the private equity folks buying out a lot of these tech companies at, at you know almost bargain basement type prices. Um, you know, I think we'll just have to keep an eye. Again, this is backward looking data. We've seen a significant rally, so much for the dog days of summer. I mean, the tech stocks have been up 20%. Is it a bear market rally or is it a true rally? Well, that's exactly <laughs> it. I mean, yes, they're backward looking, but you could argue that this is maybe one of the most least relevant set of 13 Fs we've ever had because of this enormous rally we've seen over the last six weeks. Um, so how much emphasis should we be putting on them? I mean, it's notable that a Berkshire, you know, really scaled back its purchases mm -hmm. in the second quarter from the first quarter. Um, what would you be doing over the last six weeks? I mean, to your point, is this a bear market rally or are we in a bull market? Again? It's so hard to tell, yeah. right? Like we have to wait, I think, for a little more data to come out. And it depends on the strategy as well. I think folks that are very short term focused probably have made a decent amount of money over the past few weeks. I would say that people that have a longer term perspective, it's important to think about a lot of these stocks by sector. And when I think about certain technology stocks, just putting Meta aside, if I think about folks that are selling to the enterprise, talked about Walmart and their digital transformation, it's not yeah. slowing down. So the fundamentals still look very good for the long-term prospects for a lot of these companies that focus on the infrastructure and software and services needed to accelerate and support that digital transformation. Right. We're going to continue to talk about these and especially how this applies to you. How should smaller investors position themselves? Um, in tech, joining us now, Wedbush Securities Head of Equity Trading, Sahak Manwellian. Sahak, it's great to have you this morning. Um, where do you stand? Have you been listening to our conversation? Are we in this bear market rally? Um, you can't help. I know a lot of people note on this program, too, that the dot-com bubble saw four bear market rallies of 20 percent or more, each one testing new lows. Uh, thanks for including me in the conversation this morning, Deidre. Yeah, it's it's uh, a lot of uh, stuff that came out over the last few days since really late last week with, with these uh, 13F filings. But net-net, as we go through um, the June quarterly filing showing investors selling man many of these tech stalwarts and, and mega caps as, as this was a source of funds after the uh, selling or grossing down from the high flyers or the pandemic winners, which occurred mainly uh, Q1 of this year. So so no profit in these unicorns sold off first. And then the next place that these uh, investors went to were some of these uh, mega cap stocks, which which was a source of funds for them. So on aggregate, you know, investment firms have decreased tech holdings. And to that point, that brings us to today mm -hmm. where we have positioning remarkably low. Flow dynamics have been of hedge funds, systematic funds, quant type funds taking down exposure via covering shorts. So there's been a lot of non-fundamental buying, if you will, that's really propelled the recent move higher across the spectrum of low quality, long duration, and then now more mature stocks uh, with, with balance sheets. And so investors are now being forced to chase performance, which is maybe some of yeah. what we've seen uh, currently. And, and the squeeze has been real and, and the pain's certainly palpable. Um, and, and, and just to top things off, we've got this buyback uh, market that's been very active and on the heels of a 1% excise tax coming at us uh, at next year, you know, we, we think that this continues into the rest of this year and that, you know, a lot of upside momentum behind tech and, and this tech move higher as uh, investors ha just have been underexposed to the group.
What keeps it going, Sahak, is that the idea that inflation has peaked and it feels like the market is baking in that the Fed is going to be less aggressive, potentially even pausing rate hikes. But that is not the commentary that we're hearing from Fed officials. And we're heading into another earnings season where demand could weigh heavily. Lack of yeah, it, that is. Correct. So I think what can you know move this higher, a, a lot of focus, I believe, on, on this um, spread between the 10-year yield and, and, and tech funds. Um, the, the tech index and, and the 10-year yield, the, the gap has certainly been, been narrowing. And as that continues to do so, I think tech will continue to work its way higher. And I think what also propels these things even higher is that technically the backdrop here has shifted. If we look at the broader market, you know, we're still within this bear market. Tech specifically is changing course. And when we look at tech and the S&P tech index, we're breaking above key bearish resistance lines. And, and as we break above these, I think this will only foster more and more uh, money to come into the area. And, and you know, when we take a look at a sector rotation chart, yeah. the tech sector is actually the only S&P group that is in the leading quadrant now. So, so, um, so Sahak, give us some of your, your specific picks. I know, I know you like Microsoft and some of the cybersecurity names. What are the names you like and why? Sure. Uh, thank you, Julia. So so Microsoft, as you mentioned, we've been very bold up on this. Um, again, this is part of the whole theme of uh, strong fundamental stories. Um, cyber, we think cyber's in this great uh, area of, of more and more uh, cash flows. But but I'll, I'll just introduce another name today, Micron in the semi space. Look, this is one of the most economically sensitive areas. Just last week, Micron came out saying they'll invest over 40 billion in the next eight years because of this chips and science act that uh, was recently passed they did lower guidance 2023 capex down uh demand ways for chips and pcs and smartphones you know the expectations for negative free cash flow in the quarter similar to what nvidia did we think much of this is now priced into the stock we think the forward risk is out of the numbers stock trading at around maybe 35 times above book value and we think you know, 12 months from now, stocks higher than where it's trading today. Hmm. So Micron's one area that we do like here going forward. And in the cyber space, you know, Palo Alto, these guys report next Monday. And just another one that we're very bold up on is as the shift to cloud is, is a massive tailwind, we think, for Palo Alto and the company's in just a yeah. good spot to benefit from a multi-year cybersecurity enterprise spend going forward here. Oh, Sahak, it's always great to get your insights. Hope to talk to you again soon. Sahak Manwalian, Wedbush. Thanks again for having me. Amazon is facing off with the FTC. More on the company's 49-page petition to regulators and why they claim the group's, quote, disrupting business operations. That's next. Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich.
Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Let's get a gut check on Zoom. Shares getting crushed today after City downgraded the stock to sell, cutting the price target to $91 a share. The firm says Zoom's post-COVID growth was always challenging, but they now see new hurdles emerging, including rising competition from Microsoft Teams and a weakening macro picture. The stock is now 70% off its highs. It's down 5.5% today. D. We're going to turn to Amazon on the heels of the company's announcement to buy iRobot. CNBC.com out with a new story on analyzing who could be next, jumping off a note from Morgan Stanley. They say keep an eye on a few smaller consumer hardware names dragged lower by this year's valuation reset, listing Sonos, Logitech, GoPro as some of their top picks to be acquired. Um, guys, Amazon historically hasn't been especially inquisitive. Whole Foods still by far the largest one. Um, but there is this idea of build first, buy later. Amazon likes to try and do things themselves, put a lot of money into it, get to know the market, and then buy. I thought one of these picks was interesting, too. Uh, Low Love Sack, that is a furniture retailer, down 47% for the year. Market cap, $528 million, be a tiny little acquisition for Amazon. But I don't know if it would move the needle a huge amount. When you think about a Twitch, right, what they were able to to get that at in their point in history and turn it into you know something really quite grand. They make those little D2C acquisitions. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think we, we see is that Amazon continues to expand out, especially around things that go into the home, right? right. So Sonos is the one that was interesting to me just because it's digital. It's uh, got a lot of data. Amazon loves data. Now, they say they don't do anything with the data, but I don't know. I've got a you know, Roomba, and I can see them understanding how my house is now mapped, right? Um, but, you know, I think all of these at the end of the day are just part of a grander scheme. And even though discreetly they may look very small, I think Amazon has a bigger grand vision for how all of these are going to fit together. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Don't, I mean, it's, it's so interesting. And don't forget, Dee, don't forget they also bought, uh, bought MGM. And maybe what many would say they paid too much for it or more than they should have for it. But it's so interesting looking at all of these different pieces and how they could integrate with the Alexa and the different home devices. I mean, think about GoPro um, and how you could put those cameras on a Roomba to map the home or, or whatever it may be. But also this idea that they want to really own everything about how you do things inside your home, whether it's you know, giving commands to your Alexa or cleaning your rug. Uh, and so, so much potential there. But I agree, Sonos, think about the, the ability to integrate with uh, yeah, Alexa there. Guys, Sonos has been kind of combative towards Amazon and Google, right? They're not exactly friends. So I wonder <laughs> if that would happen. But at the right price. Over there. I don't know if he would like this. <laughs> at the right price, at the right price. I mean, so many yeah, of these stocks have fallen so much. Now, on the other side of the coin, Amazon is facing increasing regulatory pressure, the company accusing the FTC of harassing top executives, including Jeff Bezos and Andy Jassy, in a new filing out late last night, arguing that the agency has, quote, no legitimate reason for their testimony as they continue their probe of the sign-up and cancellation process 
for Amazon Prime. Lo, what do you think here? Uh, is this company being unfairly targeted because of Lena Khan's history of examining, uh, examining Amazon as an antitrust risk? You know, it's it's interesting to think about this from the perspective Dee and I were talking about this. She brought up the great point around, you know, an aggressive or offensive strategy around PR. And I think there is something to be said about that. But look, the FTC is always playing catch up. The, the best and the brightest minds don't tend to go to the FTC. The best and the brightest minds tend to go to these large tech companies or start their own companies. And these folks are pushing the boundaries on these laws that always need to catch up. And so, I, you know, I don't disagree that a lot of this does, to me, feel a little bit onerous and over the top. Um, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, it, it kind of makes me laugh a little bit because uh, Jassy and Bezos, they can handle it, right? So it, do, it does feel like an offensive push here. Not an unwise one. They're getting ahead of it with so much more scrutiny. Um, but, Julia, you mentioned the MGM deal. That one went through. So I wonder if they're sort of I don't know, push, pushing the buttons a little bit. We'll see. Uh, meanwhile, if you own an iPhone, you might start seeing a lot more ads and soon that story and a whole lot more. Apple shares, they are just 5% off of their all-time highs. After the break, we'll talk more. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Good morning, I'm Frank Holland. Here's your CNBC News update for this hour. The judge who signed the Mar-a-Lago search warrant has scheduled a hearing for Thursday on whether to reveal why the government thought FBI agents needed to go into former President Trump's Florida residence. Several news organizations are asking that judge to unseal the affidavit the Justice Department filed with the court to support its request for that warrant. Trump says it should be released, but prosecutors argue it should remain secret to protect witnesses and an ongoing investigation. More explosions in Russian-occupied Crimea that Moscow says are the result of sabotage. An electrical substation caught fire after a blast, and Russian media reports also report ammunition depots exploded in northern Crimea. Ukraine has neither admitted nor denied involvement. And after a delay due to tensions over China's military drills around Taiwan, the United States tested a Minuteman III intercontinental ballistic missile today. The military says tests like this are not uncommon, and are not tied to any specific global event. That's the very latest. Julia, back over to you. Thanks, Frank. Meantime, Apple, the latest tech name, pivoting away from remote work, telling its employees in Santa Clara County that it's time to head back to the office. Employees had already been required to come in two days a week during the summer, but starting in September, they'll be expected to choose an additional third day for in-person work. An Apple representative declined to comment further on the announcement. Lo, I'm wondering whether you think uh, remote work will be a competitive advantage for some of these tech companies or whether it's just back to work. Maybe three is the new five. <laughs> three is the new five. I like that. I do think there is something to be said about the intense level of competition for employees, especially around tech employees. And the ability to be able to offer a benefit like remote work, I think, is important. Look, plus the genie's out of the bottle. 
everyone that was a denier of productivity had to make that move because they had no choice. And so, you know, I think it, but there is something to be said about the ability to be more productive, have things move a little bit quicker, have those serendipitous moments in the office as well. Someone recently said to me, um, the key was during the pandemic, there was nothing for anyone else to do when they were at home except work. But now that, you know, everything's opening back up, you can pretend you're working, you yeah. can not work. So it has changed the environment. But uh, Lo, you're here with me at One Market. You can tell the building is still pretty empty. It's pretty empty. Yeah, you'll see when you walk out <laughs> as well. Uh, meanwhile, Apple sitting just 5% off of its highs. The company also reportedly planning to put more ads on your iPhone, including Apple Maps and other books and podcast apps, and a move that would expand Apple's ad business uh, that already generates $4 billion annually. Very small in terms of the grander picture, though. Let's bring in Morgan Stanley analyst Eric Woodring to discuss. Eric, talk a little bit about the opportunity here, but also we talked about this yesterday, sort of the balance that Apple has to strike because it's doing all of these things, done all of these things in the name of privacy. And now it wants to grow its own ad business. Kind of feels like it's coming at the expense of others. Julia, thanks for having me on. No, you're right. Uh, Apple does have to walk a fine line here, but what we ultimately know is, you know, Apple leads with hardware, uh, vertically integrated hardware is where Apple does best, but it's found ways to monetize its installed base. And this is just another way for Apple to do so. They've had their App Store search ads business for a number of years now. It's in 60 different countries. It's obviously growing quite rapidly. And, uh, and they obviously see the opportunity or potentially see the opportunity to, uh, to do more in the ad space. And so, you're right, they do have to walk a fine line, but uh, but Apple has walked a fine line in other end markets before, and uh, I'm sure they'll find a way to do it this time again as well. It feels like the whole market is saying that, Eric. I'm sure they'll find a way to do this yet again. Meanwhile, you know, as we've talked about, it's 5% off its all-time high. It's making up a bigger percentage of the S&P. Now more than 7% is such an important leader. Um, what are the risks here? It comes at a time when app store growth is decelerating. Um, why, why do the market kind of think that Apple can just keep chugging along? Um, what are the chances and what are some of the biggest risk factors in your mind? No, you're right. It's a, it's a great point. I think we are seeing a, uh, a, a period of time now where we're coming off of the pandemic and some spending trends are normalizing. App store is one of them. Something that I'd just point out now that we're kind of most of the way through earnings season is if I look at consensus estimate revisions for Apple post earnings, they're relatively unchanged. For the rest of my consumer hardware universe, revenue estimates for calendar 23 are down about 8%. Uh, profitability is down, is down about 14%. So what we're seeing is that Apple has more staples like products. The iPhone is obviously the key there. Um, and that in the current spending environment, users are still spending on Apple. It's this platform that attracts so many of us, 1.1 billion of us. But again, it's not to say there aren't risks. The macro is still a risk. Um, High-end consumer spending is still a risk. It's something we need to be cognizant of. But Apple is clearly uh, better positioned, again, with more staples like devices um, in this type of spending environment, which arguably is still a challenge. Yeah, I mean, looking at those devices, that's one piece of the puzzle. But the other is services. What's your outlook for services revenue growth, considering all the, all the macro factors as well? So I have services revenue growing, call it low double digits in uh, in an Apple's fiscal 22, uh, about, uh, let's call it mid-teens in, in 2023. 
And you have to remember, there's a lot of different businesses underlying Apple's services business. App Store is just one that gets a lot of the publicity, but Apple TV is doing fantastic. Apple Music is still a, kind of a key streaming service. Apple Pay, we're all using increasingly in the world today. And so it's not to say that we, you know, it's, it's risk-free. Um, we do have to continue to watch it. And, and my team tracks App Store spending effectively weekly. Um, but Apple is very diversified in its services business. And right now, um, we are seeing some slowdown in App Store spending, but the rest of the services business is trying to help pick up the slack to keep that running, call it double digits with a low 70% gross margin. So, Eric, to tie this back to Deirdre's original questions about advertising, I have to wonder if you think advertising has potential down the line to be really, really meaningful for this company. I mean, Apple's been so cautious and it sounds like we'll be so careful and slow about how it rolls out ads. But a couple years down the road, do you think it'll be a different story? It can be. You know, we've seen Apple services. The App Store one day was zero dollars. Today it's a $25 billion business. And so um, I do think it's a longer term bet. That's that's for sure. I don't think this is a near term needle mover, so to speak. But if we can take on our long term hat and say, what's this going to look three to five years down the line? It can be a potential large opportunity. Look at all the companies that benefit from the large digital adver advertising market today. You know, Apple could enter that three to five years down the line. Um, we'll see. But I think it could be an impressive opportunity for Apple. Eric, as always, great to get your insights. Thank you. Talk to you again soon. Thank you so Eric much. Eric Woodrick, Morgan Stanley. Uh, Lo, quick take from you here. Um, Apple, you know, regained its, never really lost its leadership in the market. <laughs> um, but even the China picture, right, which is so key to this story, you got surprise rate cut yesterday. The economy there is not firing on all cylinders. Is this sort of a risk factor that maybe investors are overlooking? Yeah, you know, I saw something that said, is, is China the new Japan, kind of thinking back to how Japan's growth slowed. And the thing that we really paid close attention to was the demand for some of the new products like the MacBook Pro. And I think the good news is the, the demand was there, but the issue was around supply chain and particularly yeah. a lot of the components and manufacturing done out of China. So that is a, a major risk. You know, I, I do want to go back to this, this services piece as well and advertising. You know, I think what's, what's interesting, I don't know, Apple service is probably like a $60 billion business for them. Um, iCloud even, you know, is probably a $5 billion business. So although the advertising business at $4 billion is is very small, less than 10%, I think the head of advertising advertising now reports to Eddie Q, who runs services. So that, to me, speaks volumes about where Apple sees this shift. And obviously, their changes in privacy have capped their yeah. rivals and increased the pie for them. <laughs> well, it makes it look a little, yeah, interesting for sure, the push that they're making at this time, Julia, as you know well. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed, it's going to be a topic we're going to be talking about a lot. Meanwhile, having a hard time making money in crypto's bear market? Well, so are criminals. That story is after the break. Don't go away. While falling crypto prices continue to hurt investors, there may be a silver lining, a similar fall in smaller crypto crimes. Kate Rooney joins us with the numbers. Kate? Hey, Julia. Yeah, it's not just investors. Crypto criminals are having a tougher time making money in this year's bear market. According to a new report from Chainalysis, the total volume for illicit crypto entities is down 15% from a year ago. That comes as overall crypto volumes have fallen more than 30%. First, the blockchain data firm found a significant drop in scams. It was 65% below the levels through July this time last year. 
And these are typically those get-rich-quick schemes. You can think of those fake investing opportunities you've seen out there promising enormous returns. Those seem a little less believable with prices down right now, and fewer people seem to be falling for it. Then there's dark web revenue. That was down 43% from a year ago. It was actually tracking higher guys for this year until April. That's when Hydra Marketplace, a prominent hub for drug sales, stolen data, and money laundering services, was shut down. So we saw a bit of a reversal there. And then the one area crime is still booming. Hacks and stolen funds. It topped $1.9 billion so far this year. That's up 58% from a year ago. This is mostly in DeFi, or what they call decentralized finance. That open source code can make it uniquely vulnerable. It's used by a lot of developers, but at the same time, it's also being used and exploited by hackers. We've talked about some of those Solana wallets recently getting hacked. The Ronin hack was by far the biggest we've seen this year. And half of that total has come from North Korean groups, which have taken home about a billion dollars in stolen funds. Illicit activity is still less than 1% of crypto's total activity, but these hacks have really weighed on investor confidence. And it's been seen as a drag in an industry that's really looking to become more legitimate in the eyes of investors. Back to you. Uh, Kate Rooney, thank you very much for that. Uh, Lo, I don't know if these stats do that, make the case stronger or not. I mean, I know someone who still has all their money tied up in Celsius, so they don't have any money to put anywhere else in crypto. <laughs> yeah, look, I think what we saw was just the level of wanting people wanting to get rich quick. They saw the TikTok videos of the influencer on their yacht in San Tropez pulling up to it in their Bugatti. I want to do that, too. And then, you know, that lets people have their guard down a little bit. Not to mention, you know, it is very easy to move money around without being traced. I mean, that's the basic premise, right? And I guess if this is laying the groundwork for the next crypto boom or whatever it is, Julia, um, lessons will be learned. It's sort of like the Internet in the early days. You get a shakeout. Next time some of these businesses come around, people are going to be wiser to it. Wiser. And, and maybe the whole industry will be a little bit safer. Fascinating stuff. Meanwhile, some snowflake warnings in Wall Street this morning. More on those calls and why City thinks the stock is high risk at these levels. That's next. We're back in two. Let's do a quick gut check on the payment space. Daiwa preferring PayPal to plastic. Upgrading the fintech company to outperform, feeling that while the environment is clouded, both PayPal and Block could be bottoming out and as they reduce costs and are good bets for the long term. On the other hand, they downgrade Visa and MasterCard to neutral. Now that cross-border travel is here to stay, they feel any potential spending boost is likely over and see less earnings upside potential. Tech Tech will be back in just a few minutes. A chilly forecast for Snowflake. The stock down nearly 5% this morning as City and UBS taking the bear case on the former SaaS darling for the near term. UBS downgrading the stock to neutral after doing their own gut check with Snowflake partners and customers, finding that some are looking to cut their data spending or spread it out across other providers such as Databricks. City, on the other hand, does keep the stock at a buy and believes in the company's long-term growth, but opens a negative catalyst watch on the stock, given macro spending headwinds. City calls it a, quote, good bull market stock, but with Snowflake having lost half its value a year to date, it could be a cold winter ahead. So, Lo, my question to you is how discretionary is spending really on stocks like on companies like Snowflake? Yeah, you, we were just talking a little bit during the break about how I, I like the usage-based model when things are going really well, because as a customer, it's very easy to ramp up usage and scale up 
flip side, it's also very easy to ramp down usage if I'm looking to, to cut costs. So, you know, that's the dual-edged sword. I'm a bull long-term without question as digital transformation continues. We are only going to have more data across all types of companies but there is a, just a little bit of turbulence and some headwinds for Snowflake and you, the like. We had this conversation, a similar com conversation yesterday with Kanye. Um, there was someone who was actually not very bullish, bearish on these software names. We had so many of these companies go public over the last few years. Are there just too many of them? People seem to like Snowflake, but you've got Okta's, Datadog, so many out there. Um, do you think that, that the bundle, we talked about that during the break as <laughs> well, right. the right. bundle, what Microsoft and Google and others are able to offer, um, well, not keeping that, don't have to have that same eye on profitability because they have very profitable businesses elsewhere. Does that hurt some of these companies? Without question, it puts an extreme amount of pressure. I've even heard rumblings from people that I've talked to that the Microsoft sales team is being told to push very aggressively yeah. to go after new customers where these other companies might be vulnerable. You know, I'm looking at some of these players, you know, they offer great services. If you want a world-class data, you know, storage, and network and lake, you're going to use Snowflake. If you're very into analytics and have a huge data science team, you'll probably look at a solution like Databricks. Right. So these are great solutions, but to your point, it's just the fundamental business models that they have, yeah. you know, they're flawed at the moment. Long term, again, I'm, I'm very bullish. Best to breed, right? But in a cost-cutting environment, uh, who knows? Coming up, how much sway do Tim Cook and Satya Nadella have over markets? More than you might think. Don't miss the breakdown. That's next. Stay with us. One more thing before we go. Big tech has never been bigger. Apple and Microsoft now make up 13.4% of the S&P's market cap. That's a record amount of influence and the most since two years ago when the two stocks held 13.1% of the index. Strategist's Todd Sohn pointing out that Microsoft has been part of a power couple like this in the past 30 years ago when it held about 5% of the S&P along with General Electric. Catch the full write-up on CNBC uh, Pro. Low, want to give you a final thought here. Are these companies too big? Are they just going to attract more antitrust scrutiny? Well, that is for sure. But, you know, we're starting to see this become as tech goes, so the market goes. Yeah, critical, especially last earnings season, right? There were some fears that the earnings would be really bad. They came out okay. But leadership going forward, a lot of things that we talked about during the show. Um, <laughs> with Apple near all-time highs, can the rally keep going? Let's hope so. Yeah. Bring me back on and maybe I'm good luck. Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> well, um, we'll see. We still have... Lowe's target to report this week. Retail is going to be a catalyst for the market in the near-term future, as well as Fed minutes. The Nasdaq currently underperforming today, while the Dow is higher on those Walmart and Home Depot results. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.